Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 3, Episode 13. One. Even though she wasn't in the archives, Asante didn't have to picture the digits spinning down on the 36-hour clock. They were right in front of her, because Fox had his own, perfectly synchronized to the one that hung above her desk. Of course he does. And so Asante stated the obvious. We're running out of time. Fox very nearly smiled, the indulgent expression of a parent to a petulant child. I'm aware of the time, Archivist Asante. But that doesn't change the fact that you're not cleared for field work. Team 1 will be departing for Seattle within the hour. They can handle anything that Team 3 hasn't. Asante was more than passing familiar with condescending old white men, even when they were younger than she was. Unfortunately, as much as she might want to tell him exactly what an idiot he was or shout in his smug face, so much more calculating since he had become head of the society. She chose her words carefully. You cannot send Team One to Seattle. Cardinal Fox leaned back in his chair and steepled his fingers. Team Three arrived on the ground yesterday. They missed their last two check-ins. Tell me why I should even wait for the 36-hour clock to expire. I didn't say that Team 3 didn't need backup. I said that you cannot send Team 1 to Seattle. To be more precise, you shouldn't. And yet, you still haven't told me why. The last we heard from Sal, Team 3 was in a crowded hotel in the middle of Seattle, Washington, a major city. Asante paused, then added, a major American city. Asante paused again to see if Fox was going to catch up with her, but he didn't. Asante clarified. If you send in a commando raid, innocent people are going to get hurt. Fox dismissed this. Shaw knows what she's doing. I trust her to work clean. I trust Shaw. I don't trust everyone else in that hotel. Asante sighed inwardly. Fox still wasn't getting it. She was going to have to spell this out. American hotel, said Asante, full of Americans. We're lovely people on the whole, but many of whom have a disturbing tendency to carry too many guns 
and run paranoid about their own government, terrorism, or the Illuminati trying to take over their country. Their government has, by definition, taken over their country, said Fox, but his smugness was slipping. And the Illuminati don't exist, said Asante. Your point? Eighteen hours earlier. The lights glaring down at the front of the stage were so bright that from Tom's place in the wings, the only part of the startup's co-founder, Mark, that wasn't in silhouette, was the gleam of his freshly shaved scalp. In spite of a liberal coating of powder supplied by their programmer, Amber, the sweat had already broken through. Hopefully, the VCs would write it off as an effect of the lights and not nerves. Actually, the sweat was from a far better source, the flush of triumph. It was the last day of the Amazon-sponsored Tech Accelerator, and for the first time all week, the team from Polynumonic had a working prototype. Mark's pitch was amazing. The UI was a joy to behold. Amber's code was a thing of beauty. And now, thanks to Tom, when investors asked to try out the product, it would actually work. Mark reached the microphone at the center of the stage. In the wings, the rest of the team held their breath. Mark began his speech. When asked what attributes they most prize in a personal assistant, 95% of executives said someone who knows and anticipates my needs. There's something magical about a truly exceptional assistant. But let's face it, for most of us, a human assistant is a luxury that long ago went the way of gold watches, pensions, and three martini lunches. We have to make do with digital organizers, wearables, and automatic calendar alerts. But I want you to imagine a digital personal assistant who from day one knows your work schedule, your personal schedule, your project deliverables and deadlines, and where you and your spouse went on your first date, all without a single import or download. Sal shifted lower in her seat as the tech guy on stage droned on, trying to get a better view of the rest of the team clustered offstage. The pitch was gathering steam. Polly will change personal productivity and digital assistance forever. If you know it, she knows it. If you forget, she'll remind you. If you remember, she won't bug you. She is literally your second brain. Is it just me, said Sal, or is that really creepy? Beside her, Grace used checking her hair as an excuse to hold up Liam's smartphone camera at a better angle. Sal could hear the smirk in Liam's voice even over her earpiece. Could be creepier. He could tell them that the technology is based off stolen oracle bones, or that the more you give it to remember, the less information you'll be able to keep in your brain. For Silicon Valley investors, that might be a plus, Sal pointed out. If the tech becomes the client's first brain, they won't ever be able to quit using it. Get them on an automatically renewing subscription, and that's a guaranteed revenue stream for life. Their lives, anyway. Children. Manchu's voice broke into the calm before Liam could reply. Perhaps we should concentrate on our primary task so that we can obtain the oracle bones, thus rendering the program useless and this argument safely academic. Grace, Sal, can you see Tom? They're called apps now, said Sal. And no, the shadows are too deep from here. Grace, hold on. Grace adjusted a setting on the phone's camera. Yep, big guy, red beard. It's definitely him. Then let's go get what we came for. Grace slipped the phone back into the pocket of her silk jacket. Sal couldn't stop the idle thought that she kind of liked her in a tack vest. Still, she was happy to trade the G.I. Jane look to have Grace officially back on the team. Roger that. We're on our way. There were times when Sal's conscience pricked her about the ethics of using her badge to convince hotel clerks to give her card keys for private rooms. After all, while she was pretty sure that she was still technically a member of the NYPD, considering that she hadn't been back to New York and 
well, longer than she liked to think about, she had to be stretching the definition of technically pretty damn thin. Definitely past the point where a threat to return with a warrant had any teeth in it. However, when said hotel suite was being occupied by a startup whose technology ran on, as far as Liam had been able to figure out, whatever it was that powered the index, which had tried to steal a chunk of Sal's brain, and three ancient oracle bones, which had actually been stolen and nearly taken a chunk of Manchu and Grace with them, Sal felt pretty comfortable telling her conscience to shut up. Are we sure the bones are in here? asked Grace. I've got to be close, said Liam. There's no evidence that the apparatus is anything other than a demo before Tom arrived with the oracle bones. The company was on the verge of collapse. The founders, the whole team, is all in. They had to give up their offices to fund Tom's trip to China. It literally, these hotel rooms are the only property they have left. Unless they're running a server out of one of their mother's garages, said Grace. Not for the kind of bandwidth they'd need. Sal tuned out the rest of the argument. It wasn't really an argument, just nervous chatter. Although she wondered what Liam had to be nervous about, so far the entire mission had gone like clockwork. They'd tracked Tom, Liam's old buddy from the network, to Seattle and then to the accelerator. A little conversation with the front desk had netted them a room number and key. Now all they had to do was go in, get the goods, and get out. No muss, no fuss. The light on the door blinked green and Sal heard the lock disengage with a soft clunk. She turned the handle, and the doors sighed open, revealing a wedge of cream-colored carpet. This is too easy. Sal's conscience might have been quiescent, but her paranoia was fully functional. Sal motioned for quiet, did a last check of the hall. All silent, all clear. As she stepped across the threshold, the world cracked open, and Sal fell through. Two. The room was dark. Years of dirt and taggers had long ago occluded the high windows, and only a few slanting rays of sunlight penetrated the thick bloom of the dusty air. Sal's every step sent up a virtual plume of roach parts and rat shit, and she tried not to sneeze or inhale. There was a click. Did anyone else hear that? The question had barely left Sal's mouth when the air around them exploded in gunfire. Sal hit the concrete floor of the abandoned warehouse and rolled for cover, ratchet and roaches now a secondary concern. Thought this place was supposed to be empty, Sal gasped as a dark man with a mustache hit the ground beside her. Sal, the man asked, do you know this place? Where are we? What happened? One minute we were in the hotel and then, wait, hotel? What hotel? Two pieces of Sal's memory grated against each other, but she didn't have time to think. She had to get out of here. They both had to get out of here. Where's Collins? Her partner had been right beside her when they took the door. He was supposed to be. Sal looked around, frantic. There he was. In an instant, Sal felt her heart stop. Collins was face down on the ground, blood spreading beneath him in a steadily widening pool. Was he dead? Had she just gotten her partner shot? She had to get to. Sal was scrambling to her feet when a hand clamped down on her arm. Sal. She thumped back onto her ass hard. The man was shaking her. Wherever you think you are, this isn't it. We're in a memory, your memory. Sal, think. It was the repetition of her name that did it. Detective LaPaglia would have rather eaten fresh horse shit than call her by her first name. 
To Lapalia, she was sometimes Brooks, occasionally Detective, and until recently, Rook. Sal closed her eyes. When she opened them, she was looking into the concerned face of Father Manchu. But that made no sense. The man beside her wasn't supposed to be Manchu. Yes, Lapalia was older than she and prone to sporting a thick black mustache, but otherwise nothing like the priest who had been her boss for the last two years and change. What the hell is going on? Manchu turned her head to face him. This is like what happened when we encountered the oracle bones in China, he said. Well, different, which I assume is due to the connection of ancient artifacts to the index, but similar enough. Sal was having trouble following. What happened in China? Think back. You read the report. The oracle bones connect to the mind. Sal, you recognize this place. That means we are all in one of your memories. Sal's heart was still hammering in her chest, but she slowly managed to force her brain into something closer to coherent thought. It helped that the gunfire around them had paused. She took a deep breath and risked poking her head up to confirm her panicked first impressions. A shot sent her ducking back for cover, but a couple seconds had been enough. She did know this place. She could never forget it. This was the worst day she'd ever had as a cop, even worse than the day she had begun with the ashtray holding fingers like sun rays and ended with her brother in a coma being flown to Rome. If this is my memory, Sal said, does that mean none of this is real? That it's all in my head? That I don't have to live through this again? Any response that Manchu was about to make was cut off by the abrupt arrival of Grace pulling a heavily limping Liam after her to take refuge behind the same crates where Sal had instinctively rolled. It's all in your head, said Grace, but it's also real. If that getup of yours has a first aid kit, give it to me. Liam had already ripped off one of his sleeves and handed it to Grace, who was using it as a bandage around his leg. Grace pulled the cloth tight and Liam grunted. First ripped up by a bloody werewolf in Spain, now shot. This is not my year. Sal got a glimpse of a hole in Liam's thigh as the cloth crossed over and felt her blood run cold. She knew that wound, but it didn't belong in Liam's leg. Sal wanted to look back at where she had seen Collins, where she had seen the person she thought was Collins on the ground earlier, but she couldn't bring herself to look. She told herself the reason was the bullets still occasionally flying through the air. Quit whining, said Grace to Liam. It's a through and through, Sal finished with her. Grace's eyes narrowed. How did you know? Sal shook her head. Sal felt Manchu's hand on her shoulder. Sal, what happened here? You mean, what's gonna happen here, said Sal, again. No, said Manchu. This is your memory, but already it has changed. We're here, for one. We're having this conversation. Whatever happened, it doesn't have to happen again. Sal could barely hear her own words, but trusted Manchu to understand. I just want to leave. The surest route out is through. Clearly, you survived this once. You can do it again. We're with you. Sal couldn't keep herself from staring at Liam's leg. Quit stalling, said Grace. Tell us what happened. Sal took a deep breath. Collins, he was my partner back when I was still with the NYPD, and I were here with Detectives Lapalia and Knight. We'd each caught a body. I mean, they had one and we had one. They were two separate cases, but they were both tied to the Russian mob, expanding out of Queens, I guess. 
Sal could tell she was babbling and fought to get her story back under control. Anyway, we didn't know how closely the two murders were related until both of our investigations led us back to this warehouse. But all the information we had was that the place was empty. I mean, of course it would be empty. Why would a bunch of armed goons still be in a place where they knew the cops would come looking for them? Sal paused for breath. Half turned and shouted to the people who were shooting at them, you dumb fucks were supposed to be gone. The only answer was more bullets. Collins, my partner, took one in the leg almost as soon as we walked in. Check, muttered Liam. I stayed with him and radioed for backup, but all four of us were pinned down, outnumbered, outgunned. We were being careful with our rounds, but it was just a matter of time before we ran out. Not that it mattered. There were enough bad guys that they could rush our position any time, as long as they didn't mind taking casualties. God, it was such a setup. But we were too. We didn't see it. Sal swallowed and continued. LaPaglia didn't want to wait. He said the people dumb enough to get into a shootout with four cops were dumb enough to think that they were bulletproof. He and I thought they could get around, set up a crossfire, and take them out. He had been so sure. Sal hadn't liked the plan. It flew in the face of every procedure on the books, but she was the most junior, and she hadn't said anything. I uh, take it the plan didn't work, said Manchu. Sal closed her eyes, tried to pretend that she wasn't here. But she was in a windowless conference room looking down a microphone at a row of lawyers. That This was just telling the story one more time. It worked, and it didn't she said. LaPaglia and Knight were able to get into position and keep the heat off until backup came, but they didn't realize that their positions were overlooked from the upstairs offices. We hadn't noticed them in the confusion. Now, no time for lies, now. Sal corrected herself. No, I saw the offices, so I assumed the others had too and taken them into account. I didn't think I could have caught something that they missed. By the time I realized... It was too late. They were pinned down and couldn't get back to us. It was chaos. Blapalia and Knight kept the bad guys busy long enough for me to get Collins out. At some point, the building caught fire. We're still not sure how. By the time our backup arrived, everything was in flames. I tried to go back in after them. Sal trailed off. They gave me a fucking medal for saving my partner. Lapalias and Knights went to their widows. If I just opened my stupid mouth and said something, I could have saved them all. Sal glanced to the upper level offices. Knowing what she was looking for, she could see the tops of heads crouching below the windows, waiting for their moment to strike. Okay, said Grace. Let's do it. Do what? Get shot? You're insane. No, said Grace. I'm thinking clearly. If this is going to play out at all like your memory, the only thing that saved you was the other two detectives drawing fire to let you and Collins get out, right? Jen said, Sal nodded, daring Grace with her expression to say a word against her fallen comrades. Great. And plus, the building is about to catch fire, and backup won't get here in time to save us, so we can't stay put. But anyone who moves from this spot is going to get shot, Sal protested. No, that's what happened before. But now you know what happened and where all of the bad guys with guns are, right? Sal found herself nodding. She spent hours and hours going over the incident, with the department's investigators and with the lawyers and the civil suit that followed, and finally in her own mind in the middle of the night. She knew exactly what had happened here. She just wished she could unknow it.
What's his second advantage? Menchu asked. If we're wrong about how the oracle bones work, this is all in Sal's head, in which case nothing that happens to any of us matters because it isn't real. Feels fucking real, said Liam. Grace's teeth flashed white in the dim light. If this is real, then it means this is my real body, which means those guns just got a lot less scary. Sal stared at Grace in disbelief. You mean- Grace gripped Sal's fingers with a hot, fierce pressure that forced Sal's mind to the present. Come on, she said. Let's get you some closure. Sal squeezed back, even as her other hand closed around the grip of her service pistol. She couldn't stop her face from mirroring Grace's smile. Of course, it wasn't quite as simple as Grace made it out to be. Once Sal had detailed the tactical situation, Menchu and Liam had suggestions as well. Good ones, too. Soon, they had a plan Sal had to admit she never would have come up with on her own. Certainly not in the heat of the moment ten years ago. Menchu found a handkerchief in Lapalia's jacket pocket and put it on the end of a stick to wave in the air, shouting at the same time that he was a priest and that they needed to resolve this through negotiation. That was sufficiently distracting or confusing, Sal suspected, that Grace was able to get nearly halfway to her new cover before anyone noticed her moving and started shooting again. Grace picking a bloody bullet out of her shoulder and throwing it back to hit one of the concealed snipers in the forehead wasn't exactly tactically effective, but it certainly didn't do anything good for the other side's morale. As Grace kept running, Sal calmly picked off the two snipers in the overlooking offices, keeping everyone else pinned down until Grace scampered back to join the rest of the group. Did they work? asked Liam. Grace dropped a handful of tape-wrapped paperclips into Liam's lap. Well, I'm not electrocuted, so that's a plus. There was a hell of a spark when I jammed them into the outlets, but I didn't stick around to see if anything caught, said Grace. Old wiring like this place, it caught, said Liam. Sure enough, smoke was already curling around the wall outlets Grace had passed on her run around the room. As the smoke burst into flames, Sal took aim and shot each one of the bad guys as they broke position and ran. One by one, pop, 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 pop. This is for Knight, this is for Lapalia, this is for Collins, and this is for me. The noise around her fell away, until the only sound was her own breath echoing in her ears. Sal felt a sense of calm fall over her. When she confessed to her superiors at the NYPD that she had seen the offices and hadn't said anything, that she could have saved Lapalia on night, they said, it wasn't your fault. This couldn't have been prevented. The investigators had agreed. So had her therapist. So had her family. It's a miracle two of you made it out of that kill box alive, they all said. It was an unwinnable situation. And now, in the moment that she had the proof that her heart had always believed that there had been a way out, she finally believed there was nothing she could have done. She had years more experience now than she had then, perfect information about who was in the building and where, not to mention a priest who could sell holy water to the Pope, a technical genius, and a woman who shrugged off bullets like a bad leg cramp, and it had still barely been enough to get them through. The idea that she could have convinced three senior detectives that the offices weren't empty and then come up with a plan where they all made it out alive? Laughable. They had done the best they could with what they knew and the resources they had at the time. The outcome had been terrible, but it could have been worse. It wasn't her fault. Grace watched with relief as blood came back to Sal's cheeks and the shock and battle haze faded from her expression. For the first time since they'd stepped out of the hotel and into wherever the hell this was, 
She seemed like the Sal that Grace had come to know over the last two years, and not a hollow, haunted shell. It was nearly enough to make the fact that they were still inside a burning building a secondary concern. As if reading her thoughts, Manchu called out, Grace, uh, perhaps we should leave now? This was followed by the sound of Liam punching a door and swearing, Easier said than done. Let's door and moving. What? That was Sal again. Grace continued her careful inspection of the bodies. She wasn't surprised that escaping this room wasn't as simple as exiting the door where they entered and finding themselves back in a Seattle hotel. Tom had laid a trap, probably a trap specifically for them, knowing that Team 3 would be on his heels after the theft of the bones in China. Getting out of a memory by getting through it was tempting psychology, and she didn't blame Manchu for invoking it. They had needed something to get Sal, their only native guide, thinking instead of panicking. And the catharsis had certainly been good for her, but metaphor only got you so far. The gunmen had been an immediate threat, and so had to be dealt with. The fact that they were now in a burning building, well, from Sal's description of events, that had been inevitable. They were in a real place, and that meant they would need to find a real way out of it. And if her estimate of the level of heat and smoke in the room was right, they would need to find it in the next two minutes. Grace knew intimately what could be done in two minutes. She reached the last of the bodies and flipped the unfortunate gunman onto his back. The others had yielded little in the way of either useful equipment or information about the true nature of their situation. But as Grace frisked over the boy's demands, when did everyone start looking like a child? Body. Her fingers found something flat and oval stuck into the waistband of his jeans. Something just slightly domed, like a turtle shell. Manchu, she called. I found one of the oracle bones. The others abandoned their doomed efforts to open the door and rushed over to her. Do you think we can use it to get out of here? Asked Sal. Grace pulled up the shirt to reveal the artifact, wrapped in a layer of ordinary newsprint. Asante would have a fit. Grace grasped the paper to pull it away. Be careful, Menchu said. We don't know. But Grace couldn't hear him. She couldn't hear anything. In the instant her hand brushed the surface of the bone, the world cracked open. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Three. The night was full of mist and coal smoke. Lights twinkled on the river, giving an illusion of life to the wavering reflection of the Shanghai skyline. Grace froze. Bite in the air, the wind off the water, every sensation felt sharper, more real than anything had felt in years. As though a layer had been scraped from her skin, leaving her raw and open and alive. An abandoned newspaper fluttered in the wind and skipped down the abandoned street. She didn't need to catch up to it to know the date. This was the last night of her life. The night she had been born again as something else. Grace felt a sudden sympathy for Sal and ashamed of her uncharitable thoughts about her panic. It was one thing to live through someone else's worst memory. It was another to find yourself suddenly immersed in your own. Grace, said Liam. Of course Liam would have recognized the horizon by now. Shanghai was different in the 1920s, but the shape of the harbor, the feel of the air. Some things were embedded in the heart of a place. Grace readied herself before she turned to face the others. Her team would be relying on her, and she would not let them down. It was just as she had told Sal. She had survived this once. She could do it again. Except that I didn't. By the time she faced Liam, his face was lined in concern, but Grace's masks were back in place. We're in Shanghai, she confirmed in answer to the question he had not asked. The year is 1928. This is the night I... Her voice caught for just an instant before she completed the thought. The night we went after Antopov. There was a silence that greeted her words. Until Sal said, you know, I've never met this Tom guy, but when I do, I really think I'm going to kill him. Get in line, thought Grace. Liam's expression was grim enough that she wondered if he wasn't having similar thoughts himself. Then she noticed the blood leaking from beneath the bullet wound to his thigh and revised her assessment of his expression from grim to pain. Sal came to a similar conclusion. Shit, are you still shot? Looks like it. Liam shifted his weight more firmly to his good leg. But either it'll get worse and I'll bleed out or it won't. Unless you have a lead on some non-1920s painkillers, there's not much we can do about it. Opium, Sal suggested. Wrong century and not funny, said Grace. Not joking, Sal muttered back. Manchu cleared his throat. Grace, are we safe here for the moment? Grace nodded. For a little while. Then I suggest we concentrate on making a plan. Liam's wound has carried over from one memory to the next, but so has the oracle bone. Grace looked down and saw the etched turtle shell lying on the pavement at her feet. She had been so distracted, she hadn't seen it earlier. She knelt down and picked it up. But touching it the first time it sent them here, maybe doing so again would take them somewhere else. It didn't. Liam limped over, 
touched the shell. He met her eyes and shrugged. Worth a try. I guess it's one trip only. Then she was speaking again. If the oracle bones are driving these memories, the second one must be here. Tom only stole three when he was in China. If we can find and neutralize all of them, we might be able to break out of this trap. Sal grimaced. The only way out is still through? I don't see that we have an option. Menchu held out his hand to Grace. Here, he said. Give it to me. I'll put it in a shroud. Grace didn't move. As they had all taken the place of someone in Sal's memory, she recognized the roles that the others were supposed to play. Manchu was not wearing his priest's collar and coat, but Wu Jing's crisp navy suit that he preferred for nighttime operations. It was cut to allow its wearer to move freely and hide at least three blades in the lining. It was a very well-designed suit, but it was Wu Jing's, not Manchu's. Just as she had found a stranger's metro card, a leaking pen, and half a pack of chewing gum in the pockets of Knight's blended wool poly blazer in New York, not the detritus of her own life. Manchu had noticed her hesitation and looked a question at her. Do you still have the shroud? She asked him. She saw him reach into his jacket pocket and realize the same thing she had. They carried the oracle bone and Liam's wound from their experience inside the previous memory. They hadn't carried anything else, either from it or from the hotel. Well, said Sal as Manchu's silence answered Grace's question. That can make things more difficult. Grace slipped the shell into the pocket of her own jacket and Manchu didn't protest. She was glad because she needed it, an anchor. The night was the same, her clothes were the same, she was the same. The hard edge of the bone against her side was a tangible reminder that something was different. If you could live normally without your candle, would you? Grace dismissed Asante's remembered words as soon as they entered her mind. Memory was not time travel. Their actions in the warehouse hadn't brought two detectives back from the dead. Avoiding the wax now would not undo the last 90 years. So if there's an oracle bone somewhere in the city, Liam was saying, where do we look first? It has to be near here, said Grace. You can't be sure of that, said Menchu. This place is created from my memories, just as the warehouse was from Sal's. A specific time and a specific place that was so terrible we can't forget any of it, not even the smallest detail. It feels real because to us it still is. But if the oracle bone is here, it has to be someplace I was because that's all I can remember. That narrows things down, said Sal. I bet we can narrow it down even farther, said Liam. These memories are trying to hurt us. The oracle bone is going to be someplace that will force Grace to be in exactly the last place she would ever want to be. Grace had been trying not to look at Manchu as the conversation progressed to its inevitable conclusion. But she could feel him watching her, wanting to reach out. And she wasn't so hard-hearted that she could let him think that she was trying to push him away. We spent too long being apart. Time to admit that we'll hurt each other more by denying the other what little we have left. She looked back and found all the pity that she had feared. But to her surprise, there was something more as well. Confidence. He had faith in her. Maybe it was the memory of her more fragile body, or maybe it was just the lack of secrets between them. But Grace had never felt more vulnerable in her life. And yet, standing before him, she could feel his confidence bolstering her own. If she trusted him and he believed in her, 
Maybe she could trust herself. All right, she said. Manchu felt the irrational desire to apologize to Grace. I didn't want to invade your privacy. I never did. After China, I, I thought I would never do it again. If he was about to see the moment that ended her life, that felt more intimate than seeing her naked. The moment that killed her and brought her to you, the traitorous voice in the back of his mind told him. If not for the worst moment of her life, she would be as dead as everyone else in her old apartment by now. Manchu shook his head. It was horrible, reprehensible, selfish to be glad that this had happened. This was Grace's memory. How self-centered was he to make this somehow about his own sins? And so he wouldn't. If this was the worst thing that had ever happened to Grace, he was going to make damn sure that this time it would go differently. At Grace's insistence, they proceeded directly to Antopov's lab. The girls won't have the oracle bone. Why not? Sal had asked. Because everything in the hostage rescue went according to plan. No trauma, no artifact. But if I'm wrong, we can still get to the girls after we deal with Antopov. Sal hadn't argued after that. Manchu watched Grace as they approached the lab. Where Sal's nerves had presented as a need to speak, to confess, Grace grew quieter the closer they got. He had insisted that Grace brief them on what they should expect, the goons, the ape-like creatures, the smell of wax and burnt hair. Most of all, she had been very clear about the dangers. No one else can go for on top of. There's no way to reach him without being drowned in the wax. But it's not a real wax, Menchu had argued. It's a memory. Liam's still bleeding, Grace pointed out. I am already tied to the candle. I will not risk the same thing happening to any of you. The moment they stepped into the warehouse, everything was as Grace had described it. The candles, the cauldron, the stench. And standing in the middle, surrounded by a trough of molten tallow, was a deranged Russian professor. On top of. For a moment, everything was still. And then wax creatures were everywhere, lions, apes, tigers. Manchu couldn't tell if they were transforming before his eyes or if his brain was simply refusing to process what he was seeing. But it didn't matter, because Manchu realized that they were not, in fact, everywhere. They were all making a beeline right at Liam. Jesus, Mary! The end of Liam's exclamation was cut off by the sound of gunfire from Sal, who was already falling back to put herself between Liam and the wax creatures. She threw a glance over her shoulder at Manchu. If you have a gun, use it. It slows them down, and we only have to buy Grace time. Manchu shook himself out of his surprise. They had always known this wasn't a moment for negotiation. He ran over to Liam and Sal and watched as Grace ignored them all, moving straight toward Antopov. Manchu's heart stopped as he saw her consumed in a fountain of molten wax as the Russian reached for her and realized too late that she hadn't closed to attack him, but his candle. Grace had 80 years of experience to remind her where his weak point was. Her fingers, still dripping hot tallow, closed around the burning wick. The candle went out. Antopov and the wax figures fell to the ground, senseless. So did Grace. Manchu rushed to her, barely noticing as Sal and Liam's unerring aim picked off the few flesh and blood goons Antopov kept for his protection. She wasn't moving. Of course she wasn't moving. The candle was out. But it wasn't her candle. Was it? Manchu fumbled in her pockets, looking for a match. He had to light the candle again, had to wake her up. No, it, he couldn't. It might wake her, but it would definitely wake the others. 
But how could they? The only way out is through. He had to find the oracle bone. Without conscious thought, Menchu searched on Topov's body as still and cool as a mannequin. He suppressed the thought that he was as still and cool as the dead. Menchu had never touched Grace when she was not awake and did not like to think of her sleeping form as a corpse. The oracle bone wasn't there. Manchu sank to the floor, staring at Grace's unmoving body and beyond it, the thick yellowed candle that she had knocked to the floor when she collapsed. The thick yellowed candle with a line of black a few centimeters from the bottom. There was no ring on Grace's candle. Manchu got up, examined it more closely. It looked as if something had been trapped inside when the candle was formed. A string, a plate? The edge of an ancient turtle shell? Manchu had always treated Grace's candle as an object of reverence, acutely aware each of the few times that he had held it that it was literally her life in his hands. He tore at it now, scraping away the wax with his nails, pounding at the candle with the sole of his shoe until the candle cleaved at the line across the shell, leaving its upper surface exposed. Manchu had planned to wrap it in a cloth, even if it wasn't a shroud, it seemed as though touch had triggered the transition from one memory to the next. With Antopov neutralized, in theory, they could wait here, bide their time, make a plan. Manchu looked down at Grace's unmoving body. He reached forward and touched the shell. The world cracked open, and Father Arturo Manchu dove through. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Let's face it, as a species, we humans are pretty strange. Sure, we usually want stories with happy endings, but sometimes we're just in the mood for some nightmares. And I'm here to tell you that when that mood strikes, you can turn to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Stories to Keep You Up at Night brings you fantastic dark fiction every week. Ghosts, vampires, weird stuff nobody can explain, even some good old-fashioned murder. Curated from among the 21st century's finest writers of horror, fantasy, and science fiction from all over the world, and hosted by me, Marco Palmieri, Stories to Keep You Up at Night explores the human condition in ways that will keep your mind racing long into the night. Travel with me from small-town Pennsylvania to the court of an Indian Raja, from dank European dungeons to haunted African deserts, from forgotten pasts to terrifying futures. And be ready to sleep with the lights on, if you can sleep at all. For all that and more, listen to Stories to Keep You Up at Night, wherever you get your podcasts, or learn more at realm.fm. Bookburners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. 
executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolihi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.